For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So there are times where you start a new series and you start a new book and it's, it's kind of important to put the letter in its proper context. There are some letters that you can just pick up and, uh, and, and just move along and go, and, and it doesn't require a lot of explanation. But 2 Corinthians is one that is really important that we understand why did Paul sit down and write this letter? A lot of people don't understand that the New Testament is largely a collection of letters. There's the Gospels, but then there's what's called the Epistles, and the Epistle means letter. And they're written by first century apostles who were chosen by Jesus to, to, to spread his word to communities of Christians in different cities where the gospel had gone in and people had come to faith and they'd begun trying to walk with God. And when you approach the Bible, there's many ways to approach it. And there's nothing wrong with just picking up your Bible and start reading. That's absolutely better than doing nothing. But... The question that we really want to ask ourselves as we get into real, good, meaningful, biblical interpretation is not what what can I make this say or what does this say to me, but what did the author mean when they wrote these words? And to get to that point or as close to that as you possibly can, it helps often very much to understand something about the author. Who were they? At what period and what culture were they writing from? It helps to understand something about the audience. Who were they and what was their background and how were they approaching their walk with God and why? And what was the relationship between those two that occasioned the writing, the penning of a letter? And 2 Corinthians is a great example to do that because it's, uh, it's a book that in a lot of ways is a very personal letter from Paul to a community of people that he had founded in the city of Corinth, and he had a bit of a tumultuous relationship with them. And so we wanted to take a week before we even get into chapter one and kind of lay the groundwork for this study so that you could appreciate the nuances of what's being expressed by Paul in his relationship with, this, with these people. And so we're going to spend this first week just kind of looking over that historical situation. The church in Corinth was established by Paul during his second missionary journey. It's this area over here. And he came in there. He had been preaching and teaching in the great Greek city of Athens. And as he left Athens, he arrived in Corinth. This would have been around 51, 52 AD. And if we zoom in on this area around where Corinth and Athens are, we notice that there's some pretty unique geography to this area that has a pretty huge impact on the culture of this city. Corinth, which is obscured by the dots there, is one of the larger cities in antiquity. It's one of the most, uh, it's one of the largest cultural uh, and uh, material centers. Commerce, trade, um, religion, 
Uh, there are a lot of people, 75,000 people living in this city. And by ancient world standards, that is a serious metropolitan area. It was a major harbor town that was a big part of its economy and its trade. And the reason was, was because it was built on a very important isthmus. If we zoom in a little bit more, you see this area here, this isthmus, uh, divides the Peloponnese from the rest of the geography. And so if you were going to sail, you had to sail in the ancient world out into the Mediterranean, out into the open ocean, which was something, I mean, the boats that they had back then, the trade vessels, were much smaller and much more vulnerable, and they preferred to stay close to shore for obvious reasons. And that area of the Mediterranean, to this day, is well known as nasty sailing that there's uh, shipwrecks and storms and all kinds of problems. Whew, almost fell over that. Um, so to go all the way around would take many days, many weeks, and it would be to endanger your life as a sailor. So even in the ancient world, they discovered that if they sailed up this way, there's this isthmus right here where it's a very narrow section of land. And what they would do is literally drag their merchant boats over land and this area that's was that became a road called the Dialkos. The Dialkos, this is a picture of what they used in the ancient world. It's still available today. You can go and see where they would do this and they would drag their boats 3.7 miles over land rather than sail around the Mediterranean. And so you can imagine that a city stationed right at this narrowest point of this isthmus where people could develop a business hauling these boats over land, it would take several days. And you know, the sailors of these boats would be more than happy to spend two or three days in a harbor town. And it became a center of trade, of commerce, of language, of learning, of education, of religion, and immorality. It became, you know, the equivalent in the ancient world of something like Las Vegas. Now today, they do the same thing. Even with our larger ships, they, they prefer not to sail around the Mediterranean, so we've just cut a giant canal called the Corinthian Canal that exists today. Corinth was famous for wealth, it was famous for its eclectic culture, and it was famous for its immorality. A community of people crying out for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you could see why God would be eager to send an ambassador to that city to reach those people with his message of love and forgiveness through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And you could see why Paul who was chosen by God to reach the Greek people, the non-Jewish people, why this would be a major center and an important area where he would focus his attentions. But the city of Corinth was a wild place. It was a place of, of moral darkness. And one of the things that we see as we read through, for example, the letter of 1 Corinthians is that there are all kinds of problems in the church that started in that city. The major 
uh, center of worship in that city, there was a shrine to Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love and the goddess of life. Uh, Strabo, uh, a Greek historian, writes that in ancient Corinth, uh, there was a temple to Aphrodite that included over a thousand temple prostitutes, a thousand employees of the temple that were there to provide sex as an act of worship to this cult. Now, there is some important differences to understand. There are actually two different Corinths from a historical standpoint. There's what's kind of what's referred to as Greek Corinth. Greek Corinth was destroyed in 146 BC. That's the Corinth that Strabo is most likely referring to. But then the city of Corinth was rebuilt on the ruins of the old city by the Romans in 44 BC, and it was still Corinth. It was still a harbor town. It still had all those things uh, that would be typical of a center of commerce, a large city where people had a lot of leisure time and opportunity to sit around and get themselves into trouble. Paul and Corinth, his relationship with them is extensively laid out. We have the story of the book of Acts, and I would encourage you to read Acts chapter 18 as we go through this study, because it's the historical record of Paul coming to that city with the gospel. He arrives in 51, 52 AD, and Acts 18 tells us that he actually stays there for a year and a half, which is actually a longer period of time than he would often spend in a place. He invested in these people in a particularly poignant way and spent a lot of time engaging there. A lot of Jewish people, a lot of Greeks came to Christ in the city, They enjoyed less governmental persecution. Uh, The authorities did not get as involved as they did in some other places in pressuring and persecuting the church. But the church, as we see in the book of 1 Corinthians, is engaged in a lot of disunity and what Paul calls fleshly behavior. They're people that have come to faith and are wanting to live consistently with the way that God made us, to live consistently with the teachings of Jesus Christ, yet there is all kinds of things that are just like the rest of the world, that are selfish ways in which they are living, and Paul is very concerned about that. We can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that they were divided among themselves, tending to create factions. They're starting to have arguments. And there were, there were several key early church figures that spent time in the city. We learn that Peter spent time in Corinth. We learn that a guy named Apollos, who was a famed uh, rhetorician, an eloquent man of speech, he spent time in Corinth. And Paul was the first one there who helped establish that community there. And the Corinthians are doing this thing that's so natural to, to, to human instinct, where they're saying, well, uh, who do you follow? And they're like, well, I follow Apollos. He's far more intelligent than Paul. Well, I follow Peter. He was one of the original 12. Well, I was baptized by Paul. And they're actually fighting among each other about which you know, of their apostles is the greater. And Paul's grossed out by this. He's like, this is awful. Jesus Christ is what this is about. 
This is about God. This isn't about Paul or Apollos or Peter. And so he addresses that as they're arguing about that. We see that there are rampant sexual issues happening. And that's par for the course. Whenever you get human beings together, their carnal appetites become an issue that drive them in directions that are contrary to the will of God. But this is Corinth. Okay, And so they do everything bigger, and there's even a conflict that he writes them about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where it's said that a a man has his father's wife as a lover. Now, we aren't told specifically whether it's a stepmom or whether it's a biological mom, but either way, gross, right? Not good. And that the problem is, is that they are not only allowing this to happen among them, but they're kind of rejoicing like, oh, Jesus Christ died for our sins. And, you know, isn't it cool that he could even die for this? And Paul's like, yeah, but gross. That is not okay. And that is not how we want non-believers to see the Christian community when we rejoice in the fact that we're forgiven for all of our sin. We don't want them to see it (coughs) through the lens of being okay with terrible behavior. Paul, as he writes them in 1 Corinthians, is appalled. For example, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, are taking each other to court in legal battles. And he's amazed by this. He's like, are you not one family? How can you go to a secular judge and have him decide, should we not be able to resolve these kinds of issues fairly within our own community as brothers and sisters in Christ? One of the more poignant episodes in 1 Corinthians 11, we see that they're taking communion. One of the two rituals that's prescribed in the New Testament, which is, it involves a meal. Originally, the idea of, of communion was that you know, there was bread and wine at virtually every dinner in the ancient world. And so when they would come together, they would eat their meals together and they would drink the wine and that would remind them of Jesus' blood shed. And they would eat and break the bread and it would remind them of his body broken and sacrificed for them. And so they were coming together and they were stuffing themselves and getting drunk when they were supposed to be reflecting on what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross. And it even says that some of the people were stuffing themselves while some of the poor wouldn't get anything to eat. And Paul looks at this and he's like, how is this representative of the God of the Bible? How can you neglect people who are poor and be gluttons and drunkards in the midst of your meetings? So there were a lot of problems. People were interrupting and speaking over one another at Bible studies. People jumping up and sort of grandstanding and showing off and and kind of tripping over one another in an effort to share what they thought was important. As often happened after Paul left Corinth, false teachers came in, people claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ, started coming in and telling them why Paul was wrong and why they didn't uh, need to believe that they could be forgiven by grace alone and why they needed to do good works and good deeds in order to earn God's forgiveness. And they also began rejecting the idea that Jesus Christ had risen bodily from the dead. So there were a lot of problems in this city. And it's not surprising. These people were coming from backgrounds of great moral confusion. 
And as they are all new Christians, young believers in the faith who are beginning their walk with God, they are in a culture that's pulling them in all kinds of different directions. And Paul, who loves them, is deeply concerned for them and wants to know that there is a church in Corinth that's standing like a light on a shining hill as an example to the darkness in that city that people would continue to come to Christ because of the good lives and the good character and the self-sacrifice of the people of the church in Corinth. So he's forced to address these many issues. And when we read through 1 Corinthians, we see that he, he gets pretty rough with them. You know, the idea that he's just going to kind of ease into this, that's not really the case. Some of these problems are so bad, Paul goes on the direct. We read excerpts from 1 Corinthians, like 1 Corinthians 16, 13. He says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. 1 Cor 3, 1 through 3, he says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. As to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not, um, strife among you, you, are, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? That's pretty rough. He gets rougher. First Core 4, 19 through 21, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not ex- consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? <laughs> Can you imagine getting a letter from like a home group leader that says something like that? Right? Like, who do you think you are? Right? You're going to come to us with a rod? Wow. But he also does this within the context. This is why it's so important we understand. He has a love relationship with these people. He's the founder of this community. And he is doing this because he loves them. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 15, I do not write these things to shame you but to admonish you as beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. And this raises one of the interesting issues that we're going to wrestle through in 2 Corinthians. A lot of people think, you know, if you go in and you say to someone, what you're doing is wrong and it needs to change, it's so easy to say, hey man, don't put me under law. Why are you being so legalistic, Paul? By telling us that we're fleshly. Where's the grace, Paul? And what we need to understand is that grace does not mean that we neglect speaking the truth in love. That we neglect looking at where we can strive, where we can, we can desire to grow and be more consistent with Christ's teachings and the way that God has designed for us to live. It is appropriate and not legalistic to challenge one another as Paul is challenging them, but it must be done in the context of love. Paul did love these people. He was deeply invested in these people, but he was also willing to put his relationship with them at risk. 
You can't write a letter like 1 Corinthians without being willing to risk major alienation between yourself and the people that you're writing to. Why? Why was Paul willing to risk so much in his relationship with them? What we'll see as we study through the book of 2 Corinthians is that they didn't appreciate 1 Corinthians all that much. (laughs) That as they received that letter, new accusations came up within the community that were directly focused on tearing down Paul. Accusations about his leadership and his authority. And we see this all, all the time. You go and you confront somebody, you challenge somebody, and what do they say? Who are you? I mean, Paul, who's Paul? He's not like one of the 12, you know? He's, I mean, did, did Paul ever even actually meet Jesus? Is he even called by God? Is Paul just trying to be one of these traveling itinerant preachers who makes his living and gets rich as he goes from town to town, sucking the poor of the city dry by making them feel guilty and ashamed? They raise questions regarding his character, regarding his motives. And so 2 Corinthians, in a big way, is Paul answering those challenges that are being raised up against his authority as apostle and his character as a man. Isn't that exactly why most of us don't want to speak into other people's lives? We're afraid. We're afraid. We fear rejection. You know, if you are only supposed to speak the truth into the lives of people you deeply love, then you are only supposed to speak the truth into relationships that if lost will cause you great pain. Why risk that? Why not just let bygones be bygones? Why not just smooth things over and not risk the rejection of speaking into someone else's life? We fear reprisal. We know that we're not perfect and the people that we love are close enough to see our problems. And we feel like if I go and speak into their lives, then all of a sudden I'm inviting critique into my life. And who wants that? Why would Paul risk so much? He loved these people. He had invested in these people. And he is taking them on in a big way. And the answer is, is that the cost of saying nothing would be even higher. Paul was a man of conviction. He was a man, more than anything else, who wanted to see the purposes of God fulfilled in people's lives because he knew that would provide for them the best possible type of life. He loved them enough to risk his relationship with them. He was willing to withstand many things. It's not as though Paul went to war over every single thing that went wrong. There were lots of things going on here. As they were suspicious of his motives, he wrote in 1 Cor 4.3, but to me it's a very small thing that I be examined by you, or any human court, in fact. I don't even examine myself. I can live with the fact that you question my motives. But are you following Christ? Are you loving your neighbor and loving God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength? Question my motives all you like, but serve God and walk with him. That will make me happy. They didn't want to support him financially. 
You read in Acts 18, when Paul went into town, he immediately began making tents. That was his trade. And he would uh, make tents by day and earn enough money to provide food, clothing, and shelter for himself. And then he would preach at night. And he would take no money from the people in this city because they had been suspicious of his motives. Later on, it says that Timothy came down with some money from the church in Macedonia, and Paul was able to stop making tents and able to preach full time, but he never would accept a dime from those people because they were suspicious of him. He writes in 2 Corinthians eleven seven, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? It's so important to him that they understand the integrity of his message, that he is willing to do whatever it takes to remove whatever barriers, whatever false accusations would be brought against him. He was far less worried than what they, of what they thought about him and far more concerned with their relationship with God. And this is a driving principle in all of Paul's life and all of Paul's ministry. And it is a major reason why he was able to be so impactful for the purposes of God was because he put God's love and God's truth before comfort over and over and over again. We see a great demonstration of his thoughtfulness on this in the book of Galatians, another letter written by him. He says in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Men often don't want to hear truth. And we must speak the truth in love, but if I have to choose between creating tension in my relationship with you and serving God... I will bring our relationship to that point of tension so that I can be faithful to what God has called because it is in your best interest. It's because I love you I create this tension. That's the way Paul viewed this. So he fought hard with them. 1 Corinthians is a rough letter. But he fights with them over the central issues that are worth fighting for. Their disunity is threatening to destroy their church. They're fighting about Paul and Apollos and Peter, and they're taking each other to court. And he says, our unity, our connectedness, our love for one another. Jesus says our love for one another is how people will know that we belong to God. So he will fight for that. He will move hard and strong to say we cannot be divided as a community. We cannot harbor bitterness in our hearts toward one another because our love for one another is the heart of God's demonstration of power in us as a community. We cannot let that issue of unity be one of the things that we just don't make a big deal out of here. He was going to fight hard with them on the issues of immorality that threatened to destroy their witness. If they were no different from the rest of Corinth, what would they have to offer? They're supposed to stand out by their love, by their willingness to be merciful, by their patience, by their kindness, by their generosity, by their willingness to withstand the carnal appetites of selfishness and be givers instead of being takers. And when he sees the calamity that's happening within their community, he knows they cannot be that glorious light 
into the darkness in Corinth. When they are not letting the light of God come and shine through them in their behaviors. He starts a big fight when they start to believe in a different gospel. Because the heart and soul of Christianity is understanding what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We cannot love others, we cannot forgive others, and we cannot be reconciled to God according to the scriptures unless we understand Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Until we understand that God himself took the punishment that we deserve upon himself so that we could be reconciled to him. That we in faith must turn to God and ask to receive that free gift. And that all are welcome to do that. All are urged to do that. That no matter what walk of life you're in, no matter what evil lies in your past, no matter how difficult it would be for you to change, you can turn to your loving Father and receive His love and forgiveness and be reconciled to Him by turning to Him in faith. And if we change that, if we tweak that, and we bring any aspect of you have to earn God's love in, we profane the greatness of God's sacrifice and his gift. And Paul was willing to risk his relationship with them over that. He fought with them hard, but he never stopped loving them. Never stopped reminding them of his investment, of his care. He says in 2 Corinthians 2.4, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have, especially for you. This book is special. It offers a glimpse into some really intimate issues in Paul's life. It is one of his most personal, revealing letters where we learn about him, we learn about his heart, we learn about his love, and we learn about the difficulties of Christian leadership, the difficulties of being willing to speak the truth in love. He's deeply concerned from them, for them. The context of 2 Corinthians is when Paul left Corinth, he went to Ephesus, and he spent a great deal of time there. First Corinthians was written from Ephesus back to Corinth. But then there was an upheaval in Ephesus where a persecution became so great, he was driven out of the city. So at the same time, while he is facing a, what he feels like is a horrible defeat in Ephesus, the Corinthians, news comes to him that the Corinthians are carousing and all this stuff is going on, and they received his first letter, and they're pissed. And so he's been through hell. And now he's writing them a second time to let them know of his care and his concern and the importance of his relationship with them. Because of the, the situation that he's in, they knew that he was planning on coming. And in part, he's describing in this letter that I'm going to have to send a letter for right now. I'm not going to be able to come. And that grieves me because I want to be with you. This is a great letter for leaders who feel estranged from their people. Who feel like, I am trying to love these people, and I'm trying to serve these people, and all I get is grief and guff. I'm sure no one here in this room feels that way. 
but it is a great letter to read to see how Paul's response to their rebellion is to bear open his heart and to show himself and his love for them in all sincerity. This is a great letter for people who are struggling after being reproved, who are feeling like, who are you to say this to me? And, you know, I don't even know if I'm going to be around here if people are going to bring up these kinds of issues in my life. And if you're feeling estranged from somebody who's done that, this is a great letter for you to read and reflect on because it'll help you see and bring you back to the core of what's most important, our unity. And our unity exists because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. It reminds us of how important unity is in the family of God. How we cannot let the root of bitterness grow and divide us against one another because we will not be able to manifest the true power of God into our dark culture if we hold on to bitterness toward one another. He writes in 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 3, make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to you to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. The bleeding heart of Paul for these people that he is in conflict with serves as a great example to all of us of how we should approach conflict with our fellow believers in Christ. Warren Wearsby in his expository outlines writes, no letter in the New Testament reveals the true character of Christian ministry as does this one. No letter says so much about Christian giving, suffering, or spiritual triumph. And so I hope that you will join us in the coming weeks as we work through this summer in this book of 2 Corinthians and we really dig out and pull out all the juicy bits of steak that Paul has left there. Next week, we'll start with 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 7, where he talks to them. He starts with them in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his persecution and alienation, not only from Corinth, but from Ephesus. He talks about God's amazing comfort in the midst of our afflictions. There is something new I want uh, you guys to think about. So memorizing scripture is an incredible opportunity to invite God into your daily life. Taking scripture and putting it in your head. And I know, look, I am not a strong memorizer, okay? I really struggle with this. But that doesn't mean that I shouldn't be engaged and taking every opportunity to expand the scripture that is permanently ingrained in my brain. And there is an app that some of you may already know about. It's called Scripture Typer, okay? This is a free app. I get no money by endorsing this to you, <laughs> right? Um, but it is an incredible app that is designed to help people who have different ways of memorizing to engage them in multiple ways. Like you can have a thing where you have to write out the first, you have to tap the first letter of every word of a verse, and that'll help you memorize. They have another thing where it creates flashcards for you. 
Another thing where you can record your voice reading it, and then it will play back to you, you reading, so you can be in your car listening to yourself uh, read scripture to you. So if you're an auditory learner, if you're a visual learner, whatever kind of learner you are, it is really well designed to help you do this. And what I would like to do is I would like to challenge you, whether you have an Android, an iPhone, a PC, a Mac, you can use any one of those You can go through the website or you can go through the app. Get this app. And what you can do is you can create groups, okay, where people can memorize scripture together. And I've created a group. It's called 2 Corinthians CT 2016. And I will provide one memory verse per week. Not that hard, right? Not a huge bar to get over. One verse per week that will be preparing us for the next week's teaching. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 are the memory verse that we want to put out there for next week. And if you'll get the app, what I'm going to do is, if you're not tech savvy, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send out an email to all of you that will include a link and also a link to how to join the group. And if that's not good or you have a hard time, grab somebody in your home group that you know is tech savvy, one of those people that have their phone out all the time during teachings because they have a phone Bible, right? And uh, get them to help you. But what I want to do is how beautiful would it be if at the end of summer we've all memorized 10 verses from the book of 2 Corinthians? That could only do good things for us, right? So please... uh, Think about getting involved and doing that. Uh, We can send little competitive messages to each other. I'll be taunting you on a weekly basis. Uh, It'll be lots of fun. It's it's such a, a poignant reminder that you choose the word Father as the way that you want us to address you. Um, A lot of us. have, a, have difficult relationships with our fathers. Um, a lot of us wish that things were different with our sons. Uh, it's, a, it's a hard relationship, but the ideal of a father, the, the perfect father, we know is someone who loves, who provides, who's absolutely committed, who protects, and who sacrifices. And We know that that's why you chose that word, that that's what we're supposed to think about when we think about our heavenly father, our spiritual dad, that that's what you want to be to us. And how you say in in your word that you're a father to the fatherless. We just thank you, God, for that incredible picture of who you are. And those of us who are dads, God, we strive that our children would have a positive concept when they think of dad so that that would help them and as they strive in their relationship with you be with us today god as we spend time with our families help us to talk about real things to mend wounds and to be united and connected in the grace of your son jesus christ amen This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.